Hi, and welcome to the Newberry Chronicles. This is a podcast in which two people read through each and every Newberry award-winning book and then talk about it, but not this time. This time is a very special episode because the year 2023, the year of our Lord, uh, 2023, has come and gone. And Rebecca, tell us your idea. We just wanted to record a special podcast where we talk about some of the books that we've read this year. Both Newberry and non. Yes. So if you're only here for the Newberry discussions, um, now you can discreetly see yourself to the door. Or you can stick around and see if we're entertaining when we're not talking about Newberry books. Maybe, maybe. Um, so anyway, what Rebecca's done is she's come up with categories. I'm saying Rebecca because I don't want to take credit for her. Um, extremely, you know, laborious task that she has has taken upon herself. Um, so yeah, I think we can just go read. You can bring up each category. Okay. If there's anything to explain about it, you can say something about it, and then we'll each share which book for, that we read in 2023 we would put in this category. And you know, this will be just a way to reflect over the the various literary journeys we've gone on over the past 12 months. Yes. So before we go into the categories, we just kind of wanted to give an overview of how many books that we read this year. Rebecca wanted Um, to give an overview to brag. No, I don't want to brag. I don't want to brag. The the mere statement of the number of books you read will be a brag. We don't have to do that. What we can do is like one thing that I just want to plug. I've I've given a plug for this a couple times on the podcast, but um, this past year, for the first time, I used the Libby app, which a lot of my friends had recommended. If you're not familiar with the Libby app, it is an app that connects with your local library to give you access to ebooks and audiobooks and probably other forms of books. Um, and through the Libby app, I've been able to access a lot of audiobooks this year, which has allowed me to read a lot more, probably more than I ever have in my life, which is really cool. Um, another thing about it is that I personally have not read a lot for pleasure since undergrad. Um, Michael and I were both English majors in college. I doubled in social work. And since then, I've, uh, been working and, um, Michael's been working too, but I, I haven't really made a ton of space for like leisure reading in my life. Leisure reading? Do you say leisure or leisure? I say leisure, but I think that you know both are mean. acceptable. Fun I'm sure reading. the OED would uh, support both pronunciations. Right. And I think a part of me, too, felt this um, like lack of confidence that I couldn't really read um, capital L literature on my own outside of a class. And so I think that held me back in some ways. But I was like, you know what? This year was a unique year for me also because the majority of this year I have been home with our kids. Um, I've been working in and out, like doing little things. Um, But I've had a lot more time around the house doing things. And so one way that I've been able to um, get through the day with my kids and and just with all the things that parenting brings is by listening to books while I do a lot of that stuff. So I just wanted to encourage everybody, um, if you want to read more or you do already love to read and want access to other things for free without paying for Audible or buying a lot of books, I highly recommend the Libby app. It's been pretty transformational for my year. And yeah, I think most like it. major library systems would have access to yeah. it. I, yeah, and if you're not into audiobooks, that's totally cool. They have a lot of like ebooks as well. Um, but I know buying books is important. It's also cost prohibitive, you know, if you want to just try something out. I think a lot of people want to try something out so they think they need to buy the book. And there's other ways that you don't have to spend your money um, and you can support your local library at the same time. So anyway, that's just a little plug I want to give. This podcast brought to you by the Knoxville Public Library, Knox County Public Library. And Storygraph, which was another feature that we used really for the first time this year. Um, Neither of us are on Goodreads and we just wanted something where we could track what we read that's not uh, sponsored by Amazon. So we found Storygraph, which is a great way to track what you read. They also have reading challenges that are really awesome. I was able to do a genre challenge this year that got me out of my comfort zone and exposed me to different types of books that I would have never picked up on my own or really would have been on my radar. 
Um, it was also important to me to read from a diver like a diverse um, what is a variety of voices is what I'm trying to say. Um, both people of color um, as well as like people who are queer. Um, that aren't always on my radar because that's not what's usually recommended to me or that is in my circle. And so um, the genre challenge really helped me with that as well. Um, and so Storygraph is super great. The one complaint that I have about Storygraph is they have not curated their system to like communicate like, via social media and stuff like that. Like usually at the end of the year, if you're on socials, you see people's books with the pretty covers that you might recognize that kind of generates more conversation and just makes it pretty and fun. Storygraph doesn't really have a feature for that yet. Like you can do screenshots, um, but you can't really like transfer in the same way that you can with Goodreads, which is just a, a drawback, I think, that it's I'm that hoping. Bezos magic. I know, but I'm hoping that um, that a lot of people are saying that online, so maybe that's a feature that they will work on in the next year. But um, I really love Storygraph. And I've not utilized this aspect of it yet, but as they get a sense of, like, your interest, they'll also curate, like, recommendations for you. Um, if that's something you're interested in, um, that's something I'm hoping to, like, look at a little bit more this year um, and see what they recommend to me and if they're correct in their recommendations. Anything else you want to say before we do the categories? No, except that you've read a lot more than I have this year. So I think that like when choosing books for this category or for these categories, it was a lot more difficult for you than for me, um, just because um, of the sheer number that you've read and the sheer different types. But of I books. went through some of them so quickly. I don't. I feel like you probably retained a lot more because um, number one, Michael does not like audiobooks. Um, it's just that I don't like them on some ideological level. I have right. trouble paying attention to That's them. That's what I meant. I, like lo I lose track of what's yeah. happening. So all of Michael's book, he either read physical copies or e-copies, um, which I do tend to retain more when I'm like looking at it than when I'm listening to it. But um, regardless, our six categories are... we're gonna Well, let's do them one at oh. a time. We can surprise people. Okay, okay. Um, do we want to go and... Is, like, is there an order... I think you and I have this. Yeah, that's the same okay. order that I have. Well, we'll start for for any of the Newberry fans who stuck around. Um, Rebecca, do you want to tell us our first category? Our first category is your favorite Newberry that you read this year. Am I going first? Sure, go ahead. Okay. I talked a lot. I liked from the mixed up files of Miss Basley, Frank Weiler by E. L. Konigsberg. I had read it before as a kid. Still good. Still great. Still wish I could hide out in a museum and live a subsistence life on um, change that I found in a fountain. Um, you know, we used to be a proper country where you could do things like that. Mm -hmm. And now we're living in... Cheat your friends and cards. And now we're living money. in a city that has increased its rent um, <laughs> by a larger percentage than any other area in the country right now. And probably increase their security at the museum as well. We're not living in New York, by the way. Um, right. So I would have to go out of town to stay at this museum. Yeah. Anyway, it's still good. You can go back and listen to our podcast episode where we talk about it, um, which I believe that was back in the summer, maybe August. That was also one of my favorites. It's not the one that I picked. But what I appreciate about that book is it's very funny. Um, it's also very sweet. And just the premise of it is really fascinating. I think she hits – she is a woman, right? I, I think so. She hits all those points um, really, really well. And this was a new read for me and a reread for you. Um, so that was fun. Well, what was your one. favorite, Rebecca? My favorite was also a reread for me and a new one for you. And that oh. is Summer of the Swans by Betsy Byers. So Betsy Byers, I did mention this in our podcast episode. She was one of my favorite authors when I was in um, upper elementary, middle school, um, I loved her books, and so this was a favorite for me, and I was happy to go back to it and revisit it, um, and I just, I think her prose is, is incredible, um, the voices of her characters is wonderful, the, 
simplicity of the story while also like the depth of insight that she goes into with the relationships and um, the connections between the characters I think is truly phenomenal um, and it's definitely not the most like exciting Newberry that we've read but I think in terms of its like literary quality it is superb a child does run away in this if yeah. we want to draw parallels yeah um, he doesn't That's end true. up he doesn't end up going to the museum. This runaway is a bit more frightening than the one in um, Mixed Up Files. I bet their parents are really scared. I know, but I'm saying we never get I to know. see their parents. But, um, all yeah, right. that was my favorite. Next category, all you Newberry people, goodbye. Because mm-hmm. that's the last we're going to mention, the Newberry medal <laughs> in this podcast episode. Um, the next, Rebecca. Next category is a book that surprised you. Book what surprised you this year, that Michael? Surprised and that me. can be any type of surprise. Like maybe you were surprised at how much you enjoyed it. Maybe you were surprised at what happened in the book. Um, maybe you were surprised that you got through it. Hmm. What surprised you? Hmm. Well, um, way back in the the golden days of the summer, um, I thought I was going to be teaching an AP literature course. Um, uh, for in, in the fall semester, um, and that did not turn out to be the case. But as a result, I had read uh, I read a few books that I had been meaning to read over the summer, with the intention of potentially teaching them uh, as a, to the class that I would be teaching. And uh, one of these is by um, the Newberry Medal, not Newberry. Uh, sorry, I, I broke my code of not mentioning the Newbery Medal again. The Nobel Medal winning uh, author, Nobel Prize in Literature, uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, um, wrote a book called Never Let Me Go. Um, and I've been meaning to read it for a long time. It's fairly I famous. Say, I started singing Beyonce in my head when you said that. Does Beyonce have a song like that? Say you'll never let me go. Well, Florence and the Machine has that. Also, the title of the book comes from a fictitious song that is inside the world of the book. Um, so there's a lot of musical connections, but it's about it's about clones living in the future, and it's super sad. What, and that's what surprised me, is how incredibly sad this book was. I was expecting it to be kind of like a dystopian, like, um, I don't know what, like something more akin to like 1984 or something where it's like a cautionary tale. And it's not not that, um, but... Mostly it is a character piece of like getting to know these clones and then learning what happens to them, which is basically these clones are grown to then be organ donors, and they donate all their organs to whoever has paid for them to be created, and then they die because they don't have their organs anymore. Um, and so it's a really sad and upsetting book, and I was prepared to put my students through it. Um, and again, I was very surprised at how sad it was going to be. I was expecting more of a like sci-fi book, and what I got was a very tender portrait of characters who you watch just die throughout the book. Um, so uh, it's great, though. Dude deserves the Nobel Prize, as far as I'm concerned. Based on this book, I'd like to read some of his other books, too. Um, like The Remains of the Day is another really famous mm-hmm. book of his that I've not read, but I have it on the shelf right next to Never Let Me Go. Um, Do you think your kids could have handled it, your students? What, this book? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think I think they would have been all right. Because um, it's not initially very sad. Initially, it's like a coming-of-age story. And it's a little bit of a spoiler is what I've just said, because that's kind of like a dawning realization where you realize that they're clones and you realize what their purpose is. Um, I somehow already knew that they were clones, though, which is why I was expecting more of a kind of like sci-fi dystopia sort of thing. Um, whatever the case, I was, I was surprised. I'm glad you were surprised. What surprised you, Rebecca? A book that surprised me is a classic that I read this year, which is called Rebecca by Daphne du... How do you say I think it's Daphne du Maurier, but I'm not great with... um... Okay. So I had never read this book, and I truly loved it. And I'm not going to give any spoilers in case people have not read this book, but just to give you like an overview of this book, Rebecca is about a uh, woman who marries a wealthy man that lives in this home called Mandalay. And there is just a lot of like creepy, spooky stuff going on. And um, there's a 
dead wife that you think has That's drowned. Rebecca, right? Isn't Rebecca the wife? Yes. Yeah. Um, the titular role. Yes. She is not alive. And so what's crazy about this book is you never hear the, the name of the narrator who is the woman that Rebecca's husband marries. Like, you never know her name throughout the whole book. They never tell her name. I bet her name's Rebecca, too. So, anyway... Um, Anyway, I'm getting off track. Anyway, so Rebecca is dead. This woman who is narrating the book is married to this man, and she's just thinking the whole time that she can never live up to Rebecca's um, prestige. Like, she can never live up to, like, her her beauty and her um, just influence that What's she's had What's the name of the housekeeper people? again? I've only seen the movie oh version. I've seen two movie versions of this. Your but, dad and I were just talking um, about this, and neither of us could remember her name. Well, it's a super iconic yeah, name. So Keep look, talking, and I'll look, look it, it up. up. Anyway, um, and then there's this huge major twist, and I was listening to the book while I was running on um, the elliptical, and... Mrs. Danvers. Mrs. Danvers, Mrs. of course. Danvers. How we could forget. Yeah. Um, but anyway, when I got to that twist, I was like running so fast, I just could not believe it. So I had not been like super surprised by a book in a long time um, until I read that one. And I was actually talking to my father-in-law about this book, and he was telling me that in the original movie release, they changed that part in the book. So he was reading this with your mom and trying to not give her spoilers the whole time, and then he was surprised himself. So wow. isn't that cool? Um, Rebecca was a great book. Um, it's very, very good if you like um, those classic Gothic uh, stories and novels that have really rich imagery um, with beautiful language and um, dialogue. And um, I this was one I wished I would have read in like October. Like this would have been a good October book, you know. But um, yes, it was really great. It really the Netflix me. movie with um. Army Hammer. The Winklevost dude. Army Hammer, that's right. It's not very good. <laughs> um, but the Alfred Hitchcock movie is pretty good. That's all I have to say about this because I have not read the book. Anyway, great book. I was very surprised. And our third category is a book that made you laugh. What well, made you laugh? Initially, Rebecca and I put the same book, um, which she will discuss in a second. So um, we decided to go for two separate books though and so the other book is one that i've mentioned on the podcast before um that made me laugh and this is uh william s burroughs naked lunch um which is a truly truly wild book um unlike anything i've ever read um emphasis on the naked part there's not a lot of lunching going on (laughs) um but there is a lot of very you know this 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 book was actually the subject of the last great obscenity case in the united states um, because uh, several states wanted to, to ban the, this book, and it was taken to court. And basically, um, you had a whole bunch of artists um, coming out of the woodwork to defend the artistic merits of this book. And I am not a censorship proponent. Um, however, I definitely understand the obscenity part of the obscenity case. Uh, and so this book made me laugh just because it was extraordinarily outrageous. It was like... Um, very gross stuff, but described in a way that um, felt like a Looney Tunes cartoon or something like that. Um, just really absurd, bizarre stuff that's like an explore, like a semi-autobiographical exploration of William S. Burroughs's experience with like all sorts of like drug culture and taking drugs himself and uh, being in, um, oh shoot, what is the city that he's in? Um being in this city that was kind of known for this kind of libertine, like, anything goes uh, culture. Hold on. I should have looked this up beforehand. Um, Tangiers, uh, before it was um, re-annexed by, um, shoot, where's the country that Tangiers is in? Um, Morocco, sorry. So for a while, it became kind of like a Casablanca-type place, you know, where, like, everyone... Um, you know, all these internationals were, and it was kind of like outside of international law. And anyway, this book really leans into that. Um, and it was truly, this, this book surprised me. Um, this book, well, we haven't gotten to some of the other categories, but it, this book could have been in a lot of the categories. Um, but it did make me laugh at times. And, um, 
Yeah, so that's it. Naked Lunch. Well, a book that made me laugh was one that Michael and I um, read together. Michael's not quite not, done I'm with it. I'm not quite done. Yet. I'm almost done with it. But we read this with a couple of our friends, which was really fun. Um, we read Suchery by Cormac McCarthy. This is only my second McCarthy novel. I've read um, The Road, and that's the only one. Um, this book is very different than that. It's very meandering. It's very... Um, we've been talking together and with our friends about how this one is, is similar to a William Faulkner novel. Um, but the there's like so much happening in this book and hardly anything at all is what this book is kind yeah, of it's like. It's basically this character just who's basically made the choice to be a vagrant. Um, yeah. Just walking around Knoxville in the 1950s, having misadventures with the people that he encounters. And sometimes it's kind of like serious and or even scary. But a lot of times it's really goofy and funny. Yeah, and McCarthy is like really experimenting with language and imagery and the characters in this book, like using $5 million words when you don't really need them, but but doing it in a very artistic way. He's really um, just, just really high quality of uh, imagery and language is, um, amazing but he it is so funny at parts like the dialogue between the characters is so funny it's also set in Knoxville which is where we live um, but it's so disgusting like the I I told Michael I was like I don't know how he can manage to make a cup of coffee sound as gross as he does when it's not even supposed to be gross it's just your average cup of coffee but the imagery is just so much so that he everything is just um you don't really have to imagine anything in this book because he's going to tell you exactly what it looks like, but in That's a very true. beautiful way. But it's also really fun. It's way. also really funny. Sometimes it's funny because yes. it's gross, but other times it's funny because it's just really it's, funny. Yeah, like he gets the voices of Appalachia really well, I think, or just like people that are hanging out with their friends, like how they talk. Or there's this one are, character in particular, his name is Harrogate, who's yes. always up to some hijinks yes um some of his hairbrain scheme some of his hijinks michael found to be more funny than i did and i just found them deeply concerning but they are he is always funny he is always very funny there's this one part i'll just say one thing (laughs) so he is also kind of vagrant like uh setri they've met in prison and they've both been released in prison and they're just like turned out on the road and they have to figure out how to make a life for themselves and um so uh, Harrogate is always trying to make money. And one of the ways that he decides to make money is the health board has realized that um, there's an outbreak of rabies among the bat population. And they're really looking to get it under control and to study it so that they can be ready in case humans get it. Uh, and so they're offering, um, is it 50 cents per bat that people bring in? If a person Something. sees a dead bat, they can bring it in and they'll give them cash for it. And so Harrogate finds out about this, and he's like, well, I got a plan. And so um, he gets, he, he convinces Sutri to get him, like, strychnine, and then poisons this meat, and then make, like, makes this ramshackle raft that he, like, floats on the Tennessee River under this bridge where there's all these rats, and takes a slingshot, and slingshots this poisoned meat up into the air, and the bats will come down and eat it. And then just drop into the water and he'll scoop him up into this bag. And he gets like a bag full. So he's like Santa Claus with a big bag carrying around this big bag of bats. And he gets stopped by the cops. And the cops are like, what's in your bag, son? And he <laughs> opens it up and they're just shocked. And he goes to the health board. And the health board is like, we're not going to take all these bats. He and gets then, a free dinner out it, of it. And he feels like he's had a successful day. Right. He's like, well, those guys are pretty smart. They're, no, they're on to me, but at least I got a free meal out of it. Anyway. And this book is not a comedy, really, but it's just, it's very comedic at the same it's, time. There's a, there's a quote on the back of my book that compares it to Huckleberry Finn, and the tone is very similar in the sense of, like, it's this character who's kind of, like, allows himself to get swept up with all these other people um, and, like, undergoes, like, weird adventures with them. And sometimes the weirdness is really funny, and they're all very colorful, Um Anyway, that was the book that I would say made me laugh the most, yeah. too. But and that's why I was not only grateful to read it with you guys, but grateful to read, like, a physical copy of it because I did have to go slower and pay more attention. Oh, yeah, um, this book would be difficult as an audio book. It would be difficult. And also, I just feel like you would miss a lot. Like, this book is made to, like, kind of read slowly. I feel like kind of 
kind of sip on it while everybody else is sipping on all sorts of things. Um, but anyway. What's our next category? Rebecca? It was a great book. It made yeah. me laugh. Um, you saying I'm talking too much? No, I, I thought we were wrapping up, so I was going to just give us a little push in the I right see. direction. Category number four is a book that made you think. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> so a book I read, honestly, mostly last year, but I ended up finishing it this year, um, is a book called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, um, which is by David Wengrow and David Graeber, R.I.P. David Graeber, the, the great... Um, what would you call him? Historian, economist, theorist, somebody. Uh, but anyway, like this is basically a, them looking over, like basically both of them kind of realized there's been all these new archaeological discoveries. Um, and one of the things about our modern world is that like fields of study will have knowledge generated before it gets out into like public, like common knowledge. And so there's this kind of existing idea of like what, like this, this idea of like the progress of the human race. We started as hunter gatherers, then we made cities and agriculture, um, and then that created monarchies, which led to feudalism, which was overthrown by you know the mercantile revolutions and stuff like that, and became capitalism. Which you know, there's like this kind of um, progressive view of history that like basically people have had since the Enlightenment, um, and by people I mean like Europeans. Um, because they're very pointed in saying that this is not like a universally um, understood way that humans progress. And in fact, what they were saying is that like there's all these archaeological discoveries that kind of indicate that human society doesn't uh, progress linearly. There are all sorts of indications of like people groups who were hunter-gatherers and then created settlements and cities and then later on went back to hunter-gathering um, there are all sorts of, like, configurations of human society, con like, contemporary now, um, but also, like, in the archaeological record that indicate that, like, there's forms of, like, organizing, you know, human beings that don't really fit into those categories that we think about it. Like, there are some people groups um, in the past and s some still today that are um, kind of migratory for some parts of the year, but then will return to um, settlements that they have made, um, Anyway, none of this is really work that they have done themselves. It's saying, here are all these new things that archaeologists have discovered that kind of call into question some of the assumptions that we make about human beings. Some of those being like um, that the current state of society is the best that it's ever been and the only way that it can be because it's progressed to this point. Um, they kind of point out that like humankind has had all sorts of false starts and different people groups will make choices about um, how to organize themselves and then decide that wasn't a good idea and change. Um, another thing it calls into question is this idea that like past forms of human organization were inherently more primitive. You know, this comes out of the enlightened, you know, this kind of progressive view of history comes out of the enlightenment. Um, but that's also concurrent with colonialism, uh, and this kind of like, you know, a lot of, Enlightenment thinkers used uh, Native Americans as like, oh, we found this pure people who are primitive that we can see, you know, what was it like for man to live thousands of years ago before we progressed to what we were now? And they kind of point out that like, well, that's really kind of uh, insulting and, and um, Eurocentric way to think about human development is that we were inherently better than or more progressed than that. It also shows that Europeans didn't really understand Native Americans very well because they were organized in ways that don't really fit like what we would consider to be hunter-gatherers and like and really that idea only really came from like observing like different African tribes again through like the lens of colonialism. Anyway, lots of stuff to think about here. Um, there are some parts of this book that are more interesting than others. There's like parts of it that basically are like and here's another archaeological uh, discovery. Here's another one. Here's another one. Uh, and then there are other ones that are really engaging. Um, but lots to chew on. Lots to think about. Um this was a book that made fairly big waves when it came out. Firstly, because it was the last book by David Graeber, who's for a certain kind of, you know, historian is like, you know, he was a big deal. Um, but also because of the kind of, you know, bold claims it makes um, or, or, you know, about like, you know, how people understand history. And there's been criticism of it. There's been people who have embraced it. And it's just, you know, good, good food for thought. Um Anyway, what made you think this year? Rebecca? Yeah, you were reading that one for a while. It's pretty big. You. It's like a yeah. tome. Yeah. 
Um, well, a book that made me think was a book called Soil, The Story of a Black Mother's Garden by Camille T. Dungy. And I'm looking at her Wikipedia page, and um, she is also a poet and a professor. But Don't you know it. this book um, she wrote in 2023, I'm trying to see if it got any awards because I really enjoyed reading this. And I don't remember... I do not remember how it got on my radar. This is not one that was recommended to me. I must have seen it on a list or something. I really cannot remember how it was recommended to me. But this is a book of essays um, that basically what she had set out to do was to write her own um, Annie Dillard um, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Is that right? That is an Annie Dillard book, yeah. I just never get the title right of of Dillard's book. But anyway, she was setting out to write this naturalistic um, collection of essays. Um, but as she was writing it, she reread Dillard's um, Tinker Creek and started to really examine ways in which um, even that book is written very much, not even that book, but that book is written very much through a white lens and also influenced by, um, even though it was written by a woman, really influenced by male editors and other influences that would have wanted her writing to look a different way. And so what what Dungy really does is talks about her perspective as a mother and um, how frustrated she gets when she reads a lot of naturalistic um, literature written by men. And she there's this little part, I listened to the audiobook, which was such a gift because she's reading it. And there's this part where she makes up this little song with her daughter. I'm not going to sing it, but it's about um, here I am walking in the woods, walking in the woods by myself. And it's just like this little joke to them that, you know, you can just take all of this deep reflective time and devote just to nature and science and writing for other people, whereas um, women are not always afforded that opportunity and um, if if men are encouraged to take those opportunities, sometimes it's very much to the detriment of other people in their lives that also need their care. And so what she does intentionally is not only like write about nature in a very appreciative, beautiful, insightful, literary way, but she also brings her insight both as a black woman and as a black mother into that story in a very just beautiful way. I am not a gardener. Um, I kill plants. I don't attempt to garden. I like the idea of gardening. I have some rosemary in my garden. I was about to say, thriving. don't say yourself short. That rosemary but, has lived for like two years But now. I intentionally picked plants that don't need a lot of care from me. And so for me to not have a lot of this knowledge and um, to hear her write about plants in such a beautiful way and to tie how those some of those plants have survived in adversity and really bringing a, her perspective into that as a black woman in America was truly beautiful. Um, she also talks a lot about, like, she, I want to say in this book, she and her family are living in Colorado. I know she was born in Denver. I can't remember where. It, it's been a while since I've read this book. But whatever she's living, she's she's also talking about how she's rewilding her yard and mm. what her neighbors are saying and what it's it's. I've been trying to get Rebecca to let me rewild our yard. I have not been it, against it. You haven't, but for me, rewilding means I don't mow the lawn. Right. Well, there's you know. Anyway, um, this book was really great, and it really made me think. And I, I just think um, it made me learn about things that I wouldn't otherwise learn about, but also like her um, just background as a poet, as a mother, and as a woman was just truly um, beautiful. And the way she tied all those together. Um, I'm really trying to get some more people to read this book um, because I think it was really well done. So that book made me think. So our fifth category is a book that you really want to talk about. Well, um, for me... This is where I was going to put Naked Lunch. Um, There's also another book later on for our sixth category that I also was going to put. Um, But surprisingly, no one wants to talk to me about Naked Lunch. So I put it in the the Made Me Laugh category. So another book that I would like to talk about 
um, is a book I mentioned just on our last episode, Looking Glass Sound. I just finished it. It was the last book I finished in the 2023 calendar year. And um, it was really uh, an interesting book, which, as I described last time, uh, kind of begins as like a coming of age sort of thing about this kid going to like his uncle's home on this island. Um, and then like all this kind of like darker stuff happening and it kind of morphs into a thriller. But I had not yet finished the book um, when I was talking last time. And the way the things that it does in the last few sections of the book, every new section like kind of reinvents the book. Like and you eventually get into this metafictional element where you're seeing the book being written, you eventually get into stuff that like is maybe supernatural, but it's kind of left ambiguous. Um, and it's never clear like what level of the meta fictional narrative you're you're on, you know? Um, are you still inside a story someone is telling or have you kind of like gone outside of their perspective? And it gets really ambiguous with that. Um, and I just thought it was really interesting and I would have loved to have gotten people's takes on it. Um, so Looking Glass Sound, it just came out this year. It was every year I try to read at least a few books that come out um, in that year. And this How was, is that one on your radar? I'm trying to figure out how people learn um, about. Well, what I usually do to is during a break, like a summer break or a winter break from school, I go on Google. And in the summer, usually people, by people I mean like the New York Times or NPR or whatever, have said the best books of 2023 so far and then by December, they've released the best books of the year. And so I like trawl a bunch of those lists and then see which ones the library has copies of. Oh, okay. So um, that's my very unscientific way of like finding it. these. And so this was available at the library at the right time. It was not, of all the books that I found, it was not the book that I would have prioritized reading. Um, but I ended up being glad that I read it um, and I'm glad it was the one available to me. So... Um, what book would you really like to talk about with somebody, Rebecca? This was hard because there's a lot of books that I want to talk about. But one, I picked this one because when I finished it, I was grieving and so surprised that I really wanted to talk about it to somebody. And I even went on Facebook and said, well, will anybody talk to me about this book? And nobody. Nobody would nobody talk to did. me about it. In fact, there's a woman at our church who read this book, and I tagged her. You did. I tagged Rebecca in... Uh, in that post and saying you need to talk to Rebecca about this book and she has She yet, said nary a word. She has yet to say anything. The book is Bel Canto by Ann Patchett. This book was written in 2001. I just discovered Ann Patchett this year, guys. I know she's been around for a long time and she's been well acclaimed for a long time. Um, but so this summer, Michael and I took um, an anniversary trip when we went to Nashville Ann Patchett owns a bookstore in Nashville called Parnassus Books, and um, it's a truly beautiful bookstore, but all of her books and all of her books she has on display in the front, and she has signed every single uh, book in there that's written by her, which is really awesome. She also has, I'm going to talk about the book, but I just want to give a shout out to Parnassus, even though I've done that every time we talk about this on the podcast. It's a really lovely bookstore. It truly is, and I wish more bookstores existed like this. I'm sure that they do, but I don't get to go to them, regardless. she. Um, I also really love how she promotes local artists in the area. Um, she and Kate Camelo are friends. This was a really sweet thing. Like right before we went to Parnassus Books, like we had already planned to go there because we had read about it, um, we being me. And um, I I follow Kate Camelo on Facebook, and she had made this post that a that a kid had sent her two little stickers of a mouse reading a book. And she kept one for herself, and then she sent one to Ann Patchett, and Ann Patchett hid the sticker in her bookstore. And so I just got over the moon excited, and we went there, and we found the sticker, and then we came back with our kids later on and let them find the sticker. It was just a really sweet adventure. This place is so cute. I'm just smiling talking about it. Anyway, so while I was in that bookstore the first time, I bought... Bel Canto, because Michael had told me that was one of hers that he had heard about because it was really good. And it was fantastic, you guys. It is so good. And I'm just now finding about finding out, as I'm looking at the Wikipedia page, they made it into a movie in 2018. 
Really? I don't remember that at all. Well, maybe it yeah, wasn't I'm fairly good. plugged into the movie. Maybe it wasn't stuff. good, but it has um, it has Julianne Moore in it. Oh. So and anyway, Ken Watanabe. I don't know who that is. Pre, um, anyway, go anyway. ahead. Anyway, this book was fantastic. Um, it is based on the Japanese embassy hostage crisis, also called the Lima Crisis, uh, from 96 to 97. Basically, this entire book happens um, over several days um, in one house. So she wanted to write a book in kind of that Anna Karenina style that's like really going from like one narrator that's promoting all these different voices in one room. And so she does that throughout the house. And in the process, the hostages and the terrorists form these really deep bonds and connections to where everybody's still being held hostage, but it kind of becomes hazy of like what those relationships look like, like who's really in danger, what's really going to happen. And so people fall in love. Um, people get really accustomed to this way of life in this house as the negotiators are just sending food into the home day after day. And then... I cannot give anything away that I want to talk about, which is so hard because I really need you to read this so that we can talk about it. But the ending is truly so surprising and so devastating. And I just, I don't usually cry when I read books and I didn't cry when I read this book, but it was one that I really, really wanted to cry while I was reading it. That's how it felt. So anyway, this what book I is so know, freaking good. What I want to talk about. Okay. Because this book came out in 2001, but what month of 2001? And if it right. was after September of 2001, I wonder how the very rational American oh. public dealt with a book that was sympathetic toward its terrorist That's characters. a very good question. I don't know. I can look at my copy while you're talking about your next book and find out the date. But this book is superb. Anne Patchett is wonderful. I, when we went, we went back to Parnassus Books and we were... Um, Meeting my parents for something. It's not important. Oh, it was for Katie's birthday. Regardless, you're right. It's not important. But we went back, and I picked up another book by her at the Dutch House and read that this year. Uh, well, I listened to I picked up the copy, but then I ended up listening to it. Hmm. And I'm really glad I own it because that book is fantastic as well. I'm going to stop talking now. Um, our next, Well, our next category. Our final and category. And our last category is a book you're proud of yourself for reading. Michael, I turn it over to you. Yeah, so I, this book could have been in a number of categories. Books that surprised me, books that made me laugh, books that made me think, um, books I wanted to talk about. Um, <clears throat> and I mentioned this, I think, in the podcast a long time ago when I was reading it over the summer, and that was um, James Joyce's Ulysses, which is kind of like, you know, it's kind of like a Mount Everest novel for like a certain type of reader. You know, this long, experimental, really highly influential novel about um, this character um, who is just spending a day in Dublin, Ireland. And you see all these random, wacky things happen. The language is kind of challenging. Um, the format of each chapter is a little bit different. There's a ch whole chapter that is like a play. Um, it's very long. It's like a hundred pages. There's like a chapter where it's like mimicking different, uh, stages of the English language. So like the early parts of the chapter are meant to sound like old English. And then the later parts are meant to sound like various authors like Charles Dickens. Um, it's a book that like, I'm, I, I'm not going to lie and say that I understood everything about it. Um, or that I enjoyed every part of it, um, although there are parts of it that I enjoyed quite a bit, and overall I really liked the book. Um, but I'm glad I finally sat down and, and read it. And I didn't just read this. Um, years ago I read Dubliners, which is a short story collection that James Joyce has, and then Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, which is um, a kind of short novella novel. It's more of a novel, I guess, than a novella that James Joyce wrote. And I read both of those leading up to Ulysses, and I'm glad I did that all. I'm proud of myself for going back and rereading book, uh, those two books, because I don't often reread books. And, but I think it was really beneficial. Um, and I also um, was doing it concurrent with um, one of my friends, um, who's also been reading Sutri with us. 
Um, and so I was able to talk about it um, with him. We would meet up uh, occasionally and talk about what we thought about the book so far. And just that we whole experience. Really cute, and they would meet at an Irish pub we would or a Scottish pub if the Irish pub was closed. too full or closed. And yeah. it was really sweet. It was a lot of fun, and I'm Shout proud of myself. Shout out to Andrew. We for, can talk about our friends. Yeah, Andrew, who occasionally listens to this podcast, so if you're listening, um, I'm proud of us for having made it through Ulysses um, because it's a book I've been meaning to read for a long time, and I'm glad I finally did it. Um, Rebecca, what book are you proud of yourself for having read? Well, before I say that, I just want to say this book does not say, Belcanto does not tell me what month it was published, so well. we just have to... We'll just have to imagine the, the gracious, generous space that the American public left for um, books about terrorism that didn't result in a, you know, also war on it, terror. it won the Penn Faulkner Award, so it's another. William Faulkner comes again. Great book. Okay, the book that I'm proud of myself for reading is Orlando by Virginia Woolf. But another high modernist uh, yes. classic. yes. This was my first Wolf novel. I've read uh, some of her essays before, but I had never read um, one of her novels. And it took me a really long time. Um, I just tried to search for Orlando on Wikipedia. It took me to Orlando, Florida. That's not what I want. It's anyway, a different kind of high modernism you find in Orlando, Florida. It is. The subtitle of Orlando is A Biography. And it is actually not a biography. She wrote this novel, and it's like semi about her um, partner, her lover. What was her name? Oh my gosh, I want to find this out for you guys. Isn't it Vita Sackville West? Yes, it is. I'm just reading Wikipedia over your shoulder. And this is supposed to be like this epic love letter to her, but if it is like. Virginia Woolf is really mean to her. Like, she's really <laughs> making fun of her. Like, Orlando is this character who, um, halfway through the book, just becomes a woman. Like, she is no longer a man. And and there's, there's no explanation for this. Like, this was before... I don't know. Like, this book was published in 1928. So this would have been... Like, way before being transgender was even really in the conversation in, like, modern society or anything like that. And so I think it's really advanced for its time. Um, also, this book is, like, really plays with time in the most, like, crazy way. I don't have any other way to say it. It spans centuries but it follows this one character, Orlando, throughout all the time. And there's no explanation for why it's now modern-day time or why um, we've jumped into this other era all of a sudden. Like, there's, there's no explanation for it. It's just very artistic and, and um, wild with the way that she plays with time. But the way I'm going to say she was, like, mean to um, Sackville West is that She's making fun of Orlando the whole time that she's always writing this this book that is actually not very good. And apparently that was Virginia Woolf's way of like poking fun at her that she wasn't really a good writer. I just think that's really mean. But um, anyway, this book is one that I, any other year I would have said I probably won't be able to read that outside of a class. I won't get it. I won't understand it. And I think there's definitely aspects of it that I wouldn't understand outside of a class or really be able to give enough credit to. But I was able to enjoy it. I was able to really enjoy um, Wolf's style of writing, and I understood it, and it was engaging, and it was fun. And then Michael and I got to watch the movie together with Tilda Swinton in it. That was really good. Um, you said the movie was not as good as the book. Though, the movie right? was not as good, but I don't. This it's not really made for a movie. It's so wild and out there, and I don't. I just don't. I don't think there's any way you could make it that way. Um, anyway, so I was really proud of myself for reading this book, and I really enjoyed it. And I'd like to um, do more research on my own that I haven't either. Don't remember or haven't done, but um, this was really good. And I think you should read it, Michael, because I think you would like it. 
I've read other Virginia Woolf novels, and I really like those, so I plan on reading it sometime. I It, it also just entered the public domain um, at this new year. No, it was one of the books that is now in the United States in the public domain, so um, I may be able to just uh, download it onto my Kindle, yep. like I've done with other books. Yep. So, um, well, that's all our categories, right? Yeah, so I just want to close this by being really cheesy and <laughs> just saying that um, when I think back on the year 2023, the thing that brings me the most joy is that we got to read together and share this time together and do this podcast together, and I love you. Um, and I love you, too. for reading with me. <laughs> I have really enjoyed this as well. It's good. I, I've said this many times, um, and I think I even said this early on in the podcast, is that Reading is not something that I've been able to share with a lot of people in my adult life. Um, but this year, I've actually found lots of ways to share it. Not just with you, but like uh, reading yeah. Sutri with the whole group, and then reading Ulysses with our friend Andrew, um, and then, of course, this podcast. So um, it's been a great year uh, to be a reader. Yeah, it has. So, and I, I just also think we've talked about this a lot on this podcast before, but like, the world is just so scary and so awful. And one of the ways that we try to make it beautiful and try to make meaning out of it is telling good stories. And I really do think they have the power to change the world. Telling a good story, reading a good story, listening to one another's stories. So I'm just, I'm grateful for this art form and grateful for whoever's listening to this podcast that gives us an excuse to talk about it. So, so am I. All right, well, next time we'll be back to the Newberry Medals with uh, the 1922, I think, 19, early 1920s Voyages of Dr. Doolittle by Hugh Lofting, um, the sequel to the original Dr. Doolittle. So, um, yeah, hope to, hope to have you listen to us then. Thanks for listening. Bye.